Uh, well, some of you would know, over the past couple of months, we've had a number of visitors at our place. Uh, I've had my parents-in-law there for a while, and then I had my parents uh, for a while. Uh, and what happens when they're there is it's great, but also when they leave, they often leave things behind. It was wonderful that my father-in-law left his rodeo ute for a while, but that's actually going on Tuesday, so that's not so good. But one of the things that both families left, uh, both uh, Karuna's family and my family left, uh, were Women's Day magazines. Now, after they'd gone, after they'd gone, I picked them up and had a look at a couple of them. And I couldn't believe what they were inside them, actually. It was quite amazing. There were two things that struck me about when I read Women's Day magazines. The first one was gossip. Absolutely full of gossip. I don't think I read one article that actually had the person that they were talking about interviewed. It was like, well, a close friend of Brad and Angelina's says that. (laughs) Oh, well, someone who was in uh, the vicinity of Jennifer heard that. Or a family member of George said such and such. I don't think I read anything where they actually interviewed somebody and actually had something that they said. And then the amazing thing was you'd pick up the next week's magazine and you'd read from someone who was very close to Angelina and Brad, say a completely different story to the bloke who was close to them last week. I don't know whether you've seen that, but it's a phenomenal thing. You watch it, you read through them, and they talk about what other people say about other people. It's amazing. It's just all gossip, isn't it? All gossip. And then it's all gossip because one person's getting up with, upset with somebody because they've gone off with someone who shouldn't have gone off with someone else, and they're upset because that person was actually with that person before, and it's just a whole mess. It's amazing. But as I read that, as I read those magazines, the second thing jumped out at me. And you know what that is. The second thing was that it's all about relationships. Now, they're pretty shocking relationships and they're pretty devastated relationships. But that's what it is, isn't it? It's all about relationships, about whether one person's mucked up with one person over here or something's happened with someone over there or Shane's back with Simone or they're not back together. or they're, they, It's all relationships, isn't it? The whole magazine is made up of relationships with a few little bits of how to cook a nice cake in the middle of it. And that's about it. But I wonder, that, that people buy it. The Woman's Day is one of the most read magazines in Australia. Nina King was on during the week, uh, and she's gone through a terrible time too, um, but she actually took that magazine to being one of the most read magazines in Australia. It's a phenomenal thing, isn't it? Why do people pick up those magazines? Is it for the gossip? Maybe. But I think it's a deeper thing underneath. It's because I think we're all wired for relationships. When we look at life, life is about relationships. We have this inbuilt desire within all of us to want to have good relationships. When we see bad ones, we think that's terrible or we want to know about it, but we really desire to have good relationships. Meaningful, positive, functioning relationships with others. Why? Is it a completely selfish survival instinct that has developed over millions of years in evolution that we have a survival selfish gene within us, which Richard Dawkins says we have, the guy who wrote God Delusion? Or is it deeper than that? Is it actually part of our makeup? Is it 
part of who we are? Is it because we've been made like that? Is it because we have a God who is relational, who created us to be in relationships with each other and also with him? Well, I believe the passage that we have before us answers that very question. The Acts 17 tells us why we desire relationships. So let's look at it together. Let's see why I think that's the case. You see, just prior to this, Paul uh, has been travelling around. He's been telling lots of people about Jesus. He's travelled along and then suddenly he's had to go to Athens before the rest of his crew. There's a few mates travelling with Paul, but they, they stayed back. Paul went to Athens. He has a bit of time up his sleeve, so he starts to have a look around the place. And he comes to one of the most cultured places in the world, uh, especially that time. And if according to the film My Big Fat Greek Wedding, uh, everything comes from Greece, doesn't it? If you ask the bloke, every word uh, is derived from Greece. Everything in the universe comes together from the Greeks. And if that doesn't fix it, then you just spray Windex on anything else. And that fixes all, doesn't it? Well, it doesn't, John, but that's all right. But um, you see... This, this is why, because back in these times, Greece was, in a sense, the central hub of culture, of society. It was where ideas were being thrown around. This is where democracy started. Now, you've got to remember that Greece didn't want democracy to go any further, but they started democracy. That's where it began. That was the hub where people spoke and thought and uh, taught what was happening in life. The great philosophers came from Greece. Uh, great architecture is in Greece. And so in verse 16, we see that uh, Paul's travelled around and see what he thinks about it. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. Greatly distressed. He's come to the cultural centre of the universe at that time, but he's greatly distressed. Why is it? Because uh, when he looks at the buildings, they're structurally unsound. Is it because the people are wearing strange togas? No, because why? What does the rest of the verse say? To see that the city was full of idols. He was distressed because these guys were deluded. These guys were following things that weren't going to help them. They were worshipping pieces of wood and stone, deaf, mute images. They could do nothing but just stand there. They were not worshipping the one true God. They didn't know Jesus. And he was deeply distressed. Did you see that? It wasn't, well, it's a passing face thing. He was greatly distressed. It cut him to the, the core. It wasn't a mild thing for him. It was something, he, he hated it. It wasn't the fact that he just didn't like the way that they'd finished off the colour of the Areopagus. It wasn't that he didn't like the Acropolis. It was because they were following the wrong God. You hit it hard because you see in verse 17, he actually goes around and starts speaking to people about this. He wants to bring them the truth. He sees what they're doing. He says, I've got to go and speak to them about that. I've got to show them what the truth is. How do you feel when you walk around Evanshead or Woodburn or Broadie or uh, Wodonga or uh, Shepparton 
Uh, how do you feel when you walk around your town and you see people giving their lives to just building wealth? How do you feel when you see them giving their lives to alcohol and drugs? How do you feel when you see them giving their lives to materialism, to hedonism, to the pursuit of pleasure? How do you feel when you see them giving their lives to the theory of evolution? How do you feel when you see them giving their lives completely to their families? Now that's a tough one, isn't it? When you see them disappointed, depressed, lost, lonely, disillusioned with their wealth, with their drugs, with their alcohol, with their hedonism, with their materialism, with their evolution and with their families. How do you feel? Paul is greatly distressed. It cuts him to the core. And to be honest... I don't think I think that way very often. To be honest, when I see people in the street, I think, well, that's okay. When I see people doing those things, I think, oh, well, that's their choice. Paul is greatly distressed, not just because they're wasting their time, but because they will one day meet the real one true God and they're going to be called accountable for it. We're going to find out about that a little bit later in the passage. And his great desire is that when they meet that one true God, he's going to say, welcome, come in, because you know Jesus. That's why he's distressed, because he sees these people who don't know Jesus, who are destined to an eternity without him, and he's cut to the core. I don't know about you, but I pray that I may see people through Paul's eyes. That I may see people through God's eyes. And not mine. Because mine's clouded by Women's Day magazines. Mine's clouded by TV soapies. Mine is clouded by materialism. It's all pervasive. It overcomes me. And I think we're very comfortable. I pray that we have the eyes of Paul. So what does Paul do? What does he do in this situation? Does he say it's too hard? Does he think, nah, look, I might get hurt here. Look, this is pretty dangerous stuff. I might go, if I do anything now, they might kill me. Uh, I might lose some friends. I might be unpopular. I'll just back out of this place quietly and take off on another trip. No. Have a look at what he does. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. What does he do? He goes out there. He doesn't shrink back, does he? He doesn't get frightened. He gets out there. He goes down the street. He goes outside Farmer Charlieopolis, the store. He goes outside the sanitary sackoffs and he stands there talking to people. 
He explains to them about this guy called Jesus. He explains the good news of Jesus and his resurrection and that they can know God. Not a stone idol that can't speak to you, but a God who's relational and wants to know you. That's what he does. There's no mucking around for Paul, is there? He's out in the streets. He's out there talking to people. And he tells them about Jesus. And this caught the ears of some people. You see, there were a number of philosophical schools in uh, Greece at the time. And we hear of two of them here, the Stoics and the Epicureans. Let me very quickly paint the picture of what these two are like. And I think you'll see that they're just like the people today. The Stoics, they were into those who were individual sufficiency. They could do it all themselves. They were to struggle through life, get through it, but they could do it all themselves. They had a God consciousness that there's a God out there, but he's not a relational God. He just sits out there somewhere, I just live it myself. Their theme song would have been, I did it my way. There's people like that today, isn't there? I did it my way. The Epicureans, well, they were a little bit different. They were into pleasure. They were the modern day, what we would call hedonists, just pleasure seekers. And their chief end of life was to seek pleasure. And they said that it was best found in tranquility. Now, there's a nice sound to that, isn't it? Idea of getting away, being by yourself, no worries, no mobile phones, no MSN, no text messaging, just tranquility. That's a nice thought, I think. But... Their idea was pleasure is the ultimate aim. Pleasure is the ultimate aim. They had a God, again, but he had no interest in them. Their theme song would have been something like No Worries, Be Happy or Material Girl from Madonna. Not much different to today, is it really? It's very similar, isn't it? I do it my way and I seek pleasure. And sometimes we combine the both. And still we have that idea that there's a God out there, but what does he have to do with me? So these guys invite Paul uh, to come and speak at the Areopagus where they often listen to ideas. Uh, at least they're open to weighing it up, wouldn't they, to think about it, which is good. So what does Paul say to them? Well, we have his sermon recorded for us in verses 22 through to 30, and uh, this is probably a compacted version of it, but... Uh, at least we have a copy, don't we? We see what's most important to him. And we see, first of all, that he starts where the Athenians are at. Look at verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Man in Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. It's a nice way to start, isn't it? He's got their ear, hasn't he? Straight away. Uh, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown god. He touches base, doesn't he? He doesn't start with his Jewish heritage. He doesn't start with where he came from. He starts where they're at. That's a good lesson for us, isn't it? We can't go out into the streets, start telling people about Jesus and start from where we're at. We need to start where they're at. How do we know where they're at? We've got to find out about them. We've got to know them. We've got to go around and find out what they're on about. We've got to listen to them. We've got to find out what their life's about. We've got to find out where they're heading, what they're doing, and then we can come in and say, well, this is where Jesus makes the difference. This is what Jesus is on about. 
And so he goes and he starts where they're at and he says, you've got an idol out there and it says to an unknown God. You see, they had so many, they thought, well, if they get to an unknown one, they'll cover the whole lot. They'll cover the whole blanket. They'll, get the, they'll somehow cover them. And what does Paul say? Well, I'm going to make him known. I know the one true God. I'm about to explain him to you. Let me introduce you to him. And so how does he introduce him? He starts with creation. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. You can't contain him. Don't try and build a shrine to him. Don't try and build an idol to him. He's not contained by that. He doesn't just sit in, a, in a, some sort of plastic or moulded or gold or whatever. He doesn't form in some sort of building like this either. We can't contain him in four walls. Don't make an idol to him. He's too big for that. He's bigger than that. He's far bigger than that. So don't try to contain him. And he made everything. He made everything. Look at that from verse 26. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. There is no evolution from apes. Sorry? It's not there. God made man and woman. He made Adam and Eve and from that everyone else is here. And God has set that up to be part of it. Adam was real and so was Eve and their beginning for all of us was real. And so is their sin real. But God didn't just set everything up and then buzz off. Okay? He just didn't then set up and okay, wind up the watch and let us run. He didn't do that. He didn't buzz off. He didn't take off. He didn't leave this world. He didn't be like the song by Bette Miller that says, uh, God is watching us from a distance. No, 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 God's not watching us from a distance. He's intimately involved in everything that we do. You see, that's the big thing that shocks everyone. That's a big thing that shocks these guys. They had a God who was out there. We have a community that thinks God is out there. But the Bible says that we have a God that is right here. A God who is intimately involved in our lives. And that's a far better God to know than one that really doesn't care about us at all, is it? It's a God who cares about us. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's intimately involved in our lives. Look at verse 26 and 27. That's what it says there. It says, From one man he made the, every nation of the men. They should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far away from each one of us. He's not distant. He's here. And he comes here in Jesus. We don't have to go searching and find him. He's there in Jesus. All we need to do is grab hold of him. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. You notice again, Paul uses their terminology. Paul uses people that they know. He uses one of their poets. We could use one of the songwriters that our kids know, that they listen to. We can look at our culture and understand our culture and then introduce Jesus into that and show how he shakes it up and completely changes it. And the amazing thing is that we have a, relation, a relational God who has made us to desire relationships. And the ultimate relationship is in him. 
Paul's God, our God, is not a distant God. He's close and he wants to be closer. His desire is relationship with you and me. That's why he created us, to have a relationship with him. Because we're created by God. Why do we desire relationships? Why are we hardwired that way? Because we are made in the image of a God who wants relationships. We are made in the image of a God who is a relational God. That's why we desire relationships. That's what it's meant by being his offspring. That's why Paul says it's so stupid to go after anything else. Why go for an idol made by hands? Why seek things in materialism? Why seek things in pleasure? Why go for those things when you have it all here in God himself? Why try and find it out there when it's God himself who is the one that you're seeking? The only one who can truly fulfil that desire that you have. It's silly us trying to worship the created when we can worship the creator. Isn't it? Why do we do that? So often we do that. So often we get caught up in the materialism. So often we get caught up thinking that if I've got that. But it's all about relationship with God. That is what will hold you. And Paul says we're going to be held accountable for that relationship. Look, verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof to this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, this is not always a popular doctrine in Christian circles, but you can't get away from it. If we don't have a God who judges, then we don't have a just God and I don't want to worship an unjust God. He's a just God and a loving God and they both work together. God calls us to account for what we believe. God calls us to account about our relationships. God calls us into account about our relationship with him. Les spoke on Friday night from this verse that Jesus spoke in John chapter 4. Jesus said this, so if you don't think it's other people, if Jesus was just a guy who spoke about love, well, yes, he did speak about love, but he also speaks about judgment and wrath. Listen to what Jesus said. Whoever believes in my word and the one who sent me will not be condemned, will not face God's wrath. He has crossed over from death to life. If you don't take on Jesus, then judgment is for you. If you do take on Jesus, then judgment has been taken from you. You can face God because Jesus stands before you. We need to realise that everyone that we know, you and me included, will face God one day. We forget that, don't we? We forget that we're going to stand before him and he is a holy God. We're just saying holy, holy, holy. And holy God cannot have anything impure or unholy before him. And if we have to stand before him by ourselves, upon ourselves and just our lives before him, we are cactus guys and so is everybody else because we're not holy. But if we stand before him with Jesus in front of us, then Jesus makes us holy. And we pass through to eternity in perfection. 
If it's just our lives before him, we're in trouble. If we're going to rely on karma, we are in trouble. I don't know whether you see the TV program called um, Earl. What's the start of that? My name is Earl. It's a very interesting show. Not a great theme sometimes through it, but Earl's aim in life is to try and undo all the bad stuff he's done before. So the whole episode's before, he goes back and he tries to undo all the bad stuff he did with all these people, trying to get rid of his bad karma, is what he's on about, okay? And then what happens is, last week I just happened to flick across, I didn't stay there long because there was a few bits that weren't particularly good, but I flicked across and he's having a birthday party. It's been one year since he's tried to get rid of all his bad stuff. Now, it was a really interesting episode because there he is celebrating that he's had one year where he's tried to get rid of all his bad stuff. He's done all this good stuff. He's got all the people around him who he's done all this to him. And what happens? They keep bringing up the bad stuff. He went, no, 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 that's the old Earl. That's the old Earl. This is the new Earl. And now they keep going back to the bad stuff because you can't get rid of it, can you? It still happened. Doesn't matter whether you do your good stuff now, it still happened. And even when you do your good stuff now, you're going to do bad stuff again. And you just can't go back. If you're going to rely on karma, guys, you're in huge trouble. You see, Earl could not wipe his slate clean by himself. He couldn't do it. People still remembered it. But there is one person who can wipe your slate clean for eternity. And that's Jesus. And when you trust in him... You stand before God on that one day and he says, I do not remember anything that you did wrong back here. I've wiped it out. It's been removed. You now stand before me, holy and pleasing to me. Welcome, son. Welcome, daughter. Have you ever imagined having that said to you by the God of creation? Welcome, son and daughter. It should warm the cockles of your heart. You should be bubbling over with warmth now. There should be no coldness in you. I don't mean you feel it, but it's, just, it's, it's got to come out of you. It's huge. And at the same time, it's to drive you to be like Paul and be greatly distressed at the fact that there are people that you know at this point in time, if they died and did not know Jesus, they would not get that experience in front of God. They would be sent to hell and experience his wrath. And that is a horrible thing to be thinking about. Paul is greatly distressed by it. We need to be greatly distressed by it. Paul is greatly distressed and gets out there and tells people about it and warns them about it and pleads with them, take on Jesus. Take on Jesus. One of the most famous films in recent times has been the Titanic Uh, It's an amazing film. It was one of those first ones that had all the computer-generated stuff that happened in it. Uh, And it was a phenomenal thing as you watch that Titanic sail off. It's a huge, massive ship that it was. And it sails off and takes off. And you hear all the stories about it. And uh, you you watch the film and you see how people are saying, this can never sink. Not even God can make this sink, says the bloke, the captain. And you watch the film and do you notice the film actually then turns into relationships? You notice that? The film actually doesn't actually become about the ship comes about the relationships on the ship 
And then what happens to those relationships when they're destroyed and broken? And you get to the end of it and you don't care about the ship, do you? It's not the ship that you're worried about. It's the people on the ship. And one of those last scenes, you see Leonardo DiCaprio just sink into the cold, murky water. And his face just... And you feel sad. You feel the pain of the fact that those people have lost their lives. You feel the pain that if they could have been saved. Well, just imagine that you're transported back to the dock on the day that the Titanic was leaving. You've been here. You've come from 2007. You're back there. You know what happens to the Titanic. You're standing on the dock and you're looking at all those people falling onto the, onto the ship and you're thinking they're heading to doom and devastation. What do you do? Do you stand there and think, oh gee, if I made a scene now, I don't know whether they'd like me much. Do you stand there and say, look, if I went and spoke to that person, look, I know them and, and they, might not, they might not let me into the club later if I tell them about it. What do you do? No! You yell at them, you scream at them, you speak to them, you say, look, you're heading to disaster, you're heading to devastation. Get off the boat! You need a life raft, you need something to survive with. You tell them, don't you? Well, we have a message for eternity, for everyone out there, of a God who wants a relationship with them who makes it possible for them to have that relationship through Jesus, who holds out to all people that response to take on Jesus. We will have a God who will judge all people whether they took the life raft of Jesus or not. Who will judge them and say, well, did you spend your life in materialism? Did you spend your life in hedonism? Did you spend your life in pleasure-seeking? Where did you spend your life? who holds out Jesus and says, here is your life raft for eternity. Your eternity depends on having a relationship with a knowable, relational, caring Jesus. Are we deeply distressed like Paul as we look at our towns, as we look at our world? We need to look at their destiny without Jesus. We need to bring that to them and we need to urge them to take on Jesus because Jesus is their only life raft. Jesus is their only life raft. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just take a second to catch our breath and just to let it sink in what we've just read and what we've just heard and Lord uh, we are at pain Lord because we know of people who don't know you we know of people who are seeking their life in things that just won't fulfill things that just won't take them into eternity Lord spending their life and their efforts and their time and their money into stuff that's just going to finish here. And Lord, when they face you, it's going to be even more devastating.
But Lord, we pray for those people. We pray for those friends that we know. Lord, we pray that they all come to know you. We pray, Lord, that we may be able to introduce them to Jesus. That we may show them that there's a way off this devastation and destruction. There's a way, there's a life raft. There is one who has taken on death and defeated it for them. Lord, may we be greatly distressed like Paul. But Lord, may we have the courage and the enthusiasm and the strength to get out in the marketplace like Paul did and take the great news of Jesus to those around us, Lord. Lord, we thank you for placing us where we are. We thank you for putting us here at Evans. We thank you, Lord, for putting those people around us in our families, those friends that we have, our next-door neighbours, the person in the caravan beside us. We thank you, Lord, that you've put them there for us to be able to introduce them to you through Jesus, Lord. Pray, Lord, that you'll help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.